Again, good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to uh, turn to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16 this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew racks and uh, make your way to page 924. That's where our passage is found uh, in the pew Bibles. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we are taking uh, the bulk of this year to work through the book of Acts. It's a letter uh, written, a history uh, written by Luke to a young man named Theophilus. It's given for us as well, but we're taking our time to work our way through the book of Acts. I'm pretty sure we're going to get through the book of Acts just before Advent. Um, if nothing else, we're, we're going to do it just to prove Jason wrong. Um, <laughs> when I told him that I was going to preach and he was going to help through 28 chapters of Acts in one year, he said, no way can it be done. I said, watch me. Um, so we're going to, we're going to do our best to um, get through 16 through 28 over the next three and a half months or so, and I, I, think we'll, I think we'll do well. Before we read today's passage, I want to take just a moment, uh, particularly for the benefit maybe of those of you who are visiting or been traveling this summer, I want to take a moment and, and help you get your bearings, because, because remember, Acts is a history of the early church. The book of Acts is a history of the early church that covers about 30 years. And it's very easy to get lost in that history. I mentioned this last week that chapters 13, 14, and 15 cover roughly two years. So within the space of about two pages, two years are covered. And if you don't know that, if you don't know sort of uh, how things are flowing, then it's easy for the whole story to get jumbled. And so I want to take just a moment and give you an overview, at least, of of the last two years of of what brings us to chapter 16. In Acts 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch on what is often called Paul's first missionary journey. So they were sent out, um, and, and that journey took them to the region of Galatia. And uh, in, in Galatia was an inland region about halfway between two bodies of water. It's where modern-day Turkey is situated. And so uh, that, they went to Galatia, and in Galatia there were some significant cities, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. And Paul and Barnabas went there, and they led people to faith, and they helped to plant churches. And two of the converts in Lystra were a Jewish woman named Lois and her teenage son named Timothy. And as the churches grew, they would establish elders, appoint elders, and put them in place to care for the people. And then Paul and Barnabas would would go somewhere else. And In fact, uh, chapter 14, verse 23 tells us that was sort of the standard operating procedure. Paul and Barnabas would go to a place. They would go into the synagogues. They would meet with Jews. They would seek to reach out to the Gentiles. They would share the gospel. God would do a work. People would come to faith. As the people, as the number of people grew, they would start a church. As God raised up leaders within that church, they would appoint elders, and then once the church was healthy enough for Paul and Barnabas, later Paul and Silas, to move on, they would move on. When they came to Lystra, uh, there was a woman named Lois, whose own mother, Eunice, was likely present there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and she'd come to faith. And she had planted seeds of faith in her daughter Lois, but when those seeds of faith began to blossom, when Paul and and Barnabas made their way to Lystra, and they shared the gospel, and Lois came to faith, and then her teenage son Timothy came to faith. 
And so that's, that's sort of the background. Things were going really well. Um, things, uh, people were coming to faith in Jesus. Churches were being established. Elders were being appointed. Everything was going quite well until some bad apples began to spoil the bunch. But the churches in that region of Galatia, uh, the churches were led astray by some false teachers. Some teachers who claimed that, that it was necessary to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. So remember, Paul and Barnabas, they preached the word, they planted churches, they, they established these people in the faith, and they moved on. And after they moved on, these false teachers began to creep in, and they began to say, look, if you really want to follow Jesus, in fact, the mark of true faithfulness, you can't really follow Jesus unless you're circumcised. And we're told in Galatians 2 that, that even Peter and Barnabas were led astray, uh, began to act hypocritically. Peter and Barnabas, of course, knew that, that salvation uh, comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the true gospel. But when certain men began to teach that circumcision was a mark of faithfulness, they they didn't embrace that, but they turned a blind eye to it. They essentially gave assent to it. And of course, the bigger issue that's wrapped up in all of that is, is adding any law, adding any act of obedience to the finished work of Jesus. Circumcision was the, was the cause du jour at that moment. But the bigger issue is when we add any law, any act of obedience to the finished work of Jesus. And, and that's still a problem for us today. You heard it if you were here during the Sunday school hour. You heard it from Corey Love. You heard it from Dana Mahar. You heard it from my own son, Cademan, that it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 50, that there's always this temptation to add some, some lowercase l law, some act of obedience, some check mark on a checklist to the finished work of Jesus. And that began to take root there in the region of Galatia, and Paul was enraged. He had no use for that kind of stuff. And it was all of those issues that led the leaders of the churches to convene the first church council, the Jerusalem council, which we read about in Acts 15. And the, the leaders of the church came together, and they adopted a letter. They collectively wrote a letter, and that letter essentially said, doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile, we believe that we are saved by grace alone in Jesus, and there's no greater burden of obedience that anyone must bear. And so they came together in agreement. They wrote this letter, and then they sent that letter out with, with groups of men who would go back to the churches that Paul had planted, and they would take that letter and say, this is, this is the answer to this issue. The, the leaders of the church have spoken clearly. This is what the Bible says about that issue. And so that happens in Acts 15. And then at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, two years have passed. They're preparing to go out on another missionary journey, and they have a falling out. You see, at the beginning of that first missionary journey, uh, Barnabas's young cousin, John Mark, um, bailed. He turned back and went to Jerusalem. We're not told why, but, but that created a little rift between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on this second journey two years later, and Paul said, no, not happening. And so they went their own ways. Barnabas took his cousin John Mark, and they went one way. Paul took Silas, and they went another way. 
And so that's, that's two years of history, chapters 13 through the end of 15. It's where chapter 16 picks up. 16 picks up with Paul, no longer with Barnabas, but now with Silas. And they're going back to the same region. They're going back to Galatia. So, so, so to get things in your, uh, to get the chronology in your head, two years have passed. They've gone to what's modern-day Turkey. They've started many churches and now they're going back to those churches to see how things are going, to check on them, but they're going to expand their territory, not just going to those churches, but going further out. Paul wants, we're going to see this next week, Paul wants to go northeast, but the Holy Spirit says, no, you're going to go northwest. But they continue journeying, starting new churches. And so let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and, um, and Lord, I love history. History is one of my favorite subjects. If I hadn't been a preacher, perhaps I would have been a history professor. I don't know. But I, I love Acts because it is a history of the early church, and we see you at work. Uh, but I know that not everybody likes history. I know that that history is a boring subject for some. And so I pray that in the midst of this historical account, we would see the good news of Jesus, that you were at work today as you were at work then, and that we would see through some of these stories to the gospel story, that we wouldn't get lost in the details or the timing. Make your word which is living alive in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the church, by the brothers, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters there in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. They took with them that Jerusalem letter. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. May God write his word upon our hearts. Here is a simple and straightforward premise our God is a missionary God who sent His Son on a mission to a dead and dying world. Our God is a missionary God who sent His Son to a dead and dying world. And when we become His children, 
we take on his missionary identity. What sometimes gets lost when we read this passage is that it's all about mission. It's all about mission. It's about Paul's love for the Lord and his heart for the lost. Paul would do almost anything to break down barriers so the gospel could take root and flourish. And as we think this morning about Paul's love for the Lord and his heart for the lost, I want, I want us to put ourselves in the story. I, I want us to leave today with a better understanding and more deeply believing that the values, principles, and practices that we see here in this, in this historical account are meant to be our values, principles, and practices. And so I have three thoughts that I want um, to put before you. Three thoughts, three challenges. First, we need to begin with an all-things-to-all-people mindset. This passage is all about mission. As we put ourselves in the story, we need to begin understanding this story with an all-things-to-all-people mindset. Now, last week, I know some of you weren't here, so I'm going to try and just recapture re uh, that just for a moment. I mentioned that, that Paul was a man of principle. Paul was a man of deep and abiding principles. It was, it was his principled position on zealousness and hard work and not turning back once you had put your hand to the plow. It was, it was those principles that drove a wedge between he and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark and Paul didn't. So Paul was a man of principle, and yet... We see right out of the gate in chapter 16 that Paul was willing to set aside a principle for the greater good of the gospel and for mission. Paul was, was willing to set aside a principle for the greater good of the gospel. I want to unpack that. Over the previous two years, going back to chapter 13, over the previous two years, Paul had argued vehemently Paul had, had argued and, and um, lost friendships over the issue of circumcision. Because there were some who taught that circumcision was a requirement in order to follow Jesus. And Paul said, no, that is a distortion of the gospel. It is heresy. It is blasphemy. It is not a stretch to say that Paul despised the false teachers who placed the yoke of the law around the necks of new believers. It's not a stretch because in Galatians 5.12, Paul said that he wished that the false teachers that, that, that kept harping on circumcision and teaching that circumcision was necessary, he said, I wish they would take a knife to themselves and castrate themselves because that's what they've done to the gospel message. They've castrated and neutered the gospel message, so I wish they would do that to themselves. Now, that seems harsh to us. But Paul's position was this. If you accept circumcision as a requirement for salvation, then Christ is, not, then Christ is unnecessary. If that's going to be your position, that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, then Christ's death was meaningless. He says in Galatians, if you want to use the law for salvation, that's fine, but you've got to use the whole law and keep it perfectly. 
If you want to use the law for salvation, then you inevitably forfeit Christ for salvation. Paul had written an entire letter about this. He had been preaching about this. He had gone to battle over this. It was this issue that caused him to publicly rebuke the Apostle Peter in Antioch. Can you see, can you get a sense for how serious the issue of circumcision was to the Apostle Paul? Do you see how much he despised people who, who held up circumcision as a mark of faithfulness or a requirement set for salvation? And yet, in verse 3, we're told that he had Timothy circumcised for the, for the sake of the Jews. Now, what's up with that? So we read the backstory. Timothy's mother... Lois was a Jew, but his father was a Greek, so as a son with Greek lineage, he had never been circumcised. So you'd expect Paul, of all people, when, when, he, comes back to, uh, when he comes back to Lystra, he's led Timothy to, Timothy to faith two years earlier, and he comes back to him, and Timothy's matured and grown. Now he's going to take him on a mission trip with him. Actually, Timothy becomes his protege. You would expect him to say, you're not circumcised? Great, that's no big deal. You know how I feel about that. Let's get going. But Paul has a missional mindset. And the greatest good in Paul's mind is that the gospel will flourish. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win some. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. Why do you do that, Paul? This is how he ends that passage. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul had an all things to all people mindset. So he was willing to set aside not the gospel, but a principle related to circumcision for the advance of the gospel. When Paul would go from place to place, one of the first stops that he would make is the synagogue. He, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. We learn about that in Romans 15, that God had called him specifically to go and to minister to the Gentiles. But he understood that in order to have an inroad with the Gentiles, he first needed to... to um, to make peace with the Jews in that area. So he would go to the synagogue and he would talk and he would teach and he would preach there. And he understood that if having Timothy circumcised would break down barriers between the Jews, then Paul was all for it. I hope Timothy was all for it. He was about 17 years old when it happened. One author writes, for Paul... Circumcision was a matter of indifference. In fact, he writes that in Galatians. Whether circumcision or uncircumcision, it matters not. For Paul, circumcision was a matter of indifference. This author says, only when it was regarded as a condition of grace did it negate grace. So this minor surgical procedure was for a practical purpose. The purpose was Timothy's usefulness for the gospel cause. And so last week, if you were here, Paul goes to the mat over his principles. 
But then a few verses later, he's willing to set aside a principle for the sake of the gospel. Because he has an all things to all people mindset. Paul was free to set aside a non-salvation principle for the greater power of gospel salvation. In other words, Paul freely adopted an all things to all people mindset. If that's what it takes for the gospel to flourish. And so I want us to put ourselves in the story. What about you? What about us? Are we willing, for the sake of the gospel, to adopt an all-things-to-all-people mindset? To step out of our comfort zones so that the gospel might advance? In 1853, a 21-year-old named uh, Hudson Taylor left England for China. And when he arrived in China as a missionary, he made a radical decision. His decision was to dress in traditional Chinese clothes and to grow a ponytail because that was the style of Chinese men at the time. And so he leaves England in the mid-19th century, he goes to China, and uh, in our day we would call that cultural appropriation. In his day, he called it the advance of the gospel. So he grew a ponytail, he took on traditional Chinese clothes, and one biographer of Hudson Taylor writes this, his fellow Protestants were both incredulous and critical. But criticism doesn't dissuade an all-things-to-all-people mindset. Several years ago, here at CPC, I made a decision, a conscious decision, to dress more casually on Sundays. I received a fair bit of criticism for that, um, that may surprise you, it may not. <laughs> um, and and uh, my decision to, to dress more casually, it was solidified in my own heart one, one Thursday, actually. Not on a Sunday, but on a Thursday. And uh, I was in the fellowship hall, uh, and a dear brother who is a, uh, who's a member of the church now, but he wasn't a member of the church then, uh, he was up here doing some work, and he saw me in shorts. And he came up and he gave me a hug. And he said, I've never seen a pastor in shorts. That's pretty cool. He said, it's nice to have a pastor that dresses like you. I thought to myself, if that's what it takes to connect, I'll start wearing yoga pants or whatever. You know, I don't know. That's not what it takes to connect? Okay. Now, I would love to say I was wearing shorts that day because in the back of my mind, I had an all-things-to-all-people mindset. I was wearing shorts that day because it was hot in the middle of July, and we were up here doing some work and moving some stuff around. But, but that decision solidified in my mind that these are little things. These are small things. But it's in the small things that we show Jesus and his gospel to be the greatest thing. And so what about us as a church body, corporately? In what ways are we willing to embrace an all-things-to-all-people mindset for the sake of the gospel? I don't have anything specific in mind. I'm not trying to offend needlessly. But I want to leave you with that challenge. In what ways do you as an individual or we as a body need to embrace an all-things-to-all-people mindset? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's what it looks like to be on mission. That's what it looked like for Paul to be on mission, that he was willing to set aside a deeply held principle for the greater good of gospel advancement. Let me give you a second thought. 
In mission, we're to keep doing what we've been called to do right where God has placed us. And I want you just to peer into the mind of the Apostle Paul for a moment, okay? I mentioned that Romans 15 tells us that God had called Paul to primarily be a minister and missionary to the Gentiles. And, and so Paul, Paul wanted to move further and further into the Gentile world. That was his goal, to keep moving further and further into the Gentile world. You see, in Paul's mind, it's a no-brainer. If God had called him to be a missionary to the Gentiles, then he needed to move into Gentile country. And yet, verse 6 here in the passage tells us that the Holy Spirit forbade him to go there. This is a no-brainer for Paul. If I'm going to be a missionary to the Gentiles, then I have to go. If you have your, uh, your geography, the back of your maps, you've got Antioch. He wants to go northeast from there. He wants to go east and north away from the Galatian region. But the Holy Spirit would not permit him. The Holy Spirit, in our, in our terms, we, we may say he closed the door. And so what do we do when God closes a door on our plans? Well, we keep doing what God has called us to do right where he has placed us for that time. And so Paul continued in Phrygia and Galatia and eventually made his way west to Troas. And there in Troas, that wasn't part of Paul's plan, but it was part of God's plan. And it's an awesome plan, as we're going to see in a moment. God did something amazing through it. That sometimes when God closes a door on our plans and he takes us another place that we don't want to go, he does something that we never would have expected. I have a buddy, um, a good friend, who hates his job. He hates his job, and yet God has given him all sorts of opportunities to be a gospel witness at his job. Talk about a conundrum. That God keeps opening doors to be a gospel witness, but you dread going in every day. His office is filled with non-believers, and, and, and my buddy is one of the only believers in his company. And he longs to work elsewhere, and he longs to do something different, but God has kept him right where he is. And friends, I want you to understand that we have to learn faithfulness and contentment where God has placed us because he knows things that we don't know when he has plans that are bigger than our plans. And so you may, like Paul, want to go this direction and believe God's leading, but he may stop that. What do you do in the meantime? You keep doing what he's told you to do right where he's placed you for the moment. I have another acquaintance in the Dallas area. Uh, we got to know each other a little over 10 years ago. He, for years, he longed to go to the Middle East and work as a missionary in Syria with the refugees there and to other Middle Eastern refugees. That's a good thing, couldn't, wouldn't we agree? That's a good longing. I mean, surely God can't have any issue when one, of his, when one of his children wants to go halfway across the world to serve in missions. And yet, God kept closing doors. God kept erecting obstacles or at least permitting them. At, at first, for my, my friend, finances were an obstacle. And then once he got the finances sorted out, family became an obstacle. And then once, once the family issues had subsided, the ch a church situation sprang up and created an even greater obstacle. And this man could have given up, but he determined to fulfill God's calling right where God had placed him. 
And so he noticed that there were more and more Syrian refugees coming to the Dallas area. And so he said, well, if I can't go to Syria, I'll just minister to them right in my own backyard. And he began a ministry to Middle Eastern folks and refugees in DFW, and God has prospered that work. So what do you do when God closes a door? When it seems clear you're supposed to go this way, but you can't go that way? Well, you do what he's called you to do right where he's put you. And a missionary mindset, a missionary mindset, it's a heart for people. It values people over place. And so our call is just to bloom where we're planted. That's what it means to be on mission. That you don't have to, if you heard this morning uh, uh, in the testimonies, my, my oldest son, Caveman, talking about at the end of May, early part of June, he and I and some others traveled to Cuba and we went on a mission trip. You heard the week before that, Mary Jane and Jonathan and some others talking about the trip to, to Honduras recently, these partnerships that we have. You don't have to go to South America. You don't have to go to a Caribbean island to be on mission. In fact, God has called us each to mission right where we are. He may call you to go someplace. He may direct you to this place or that place, but it's the people that we value over the place. And so... We do what God has called us to do right where he's placed us until he leads us elsewhere. Here's a final thought. When it comes to mission, we have to listen to the Lord and obey his call. Now that sounds very simple, but it's easier said than done to listen to the Lord and obey his call. Paul found himself in Troas. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be in Troas. And, and, and while he was there, the Lord sent him a vision. A Macedonian man saying, come to Macedonia and help us. I told you if, you, if you have your maps, Paul wanted to go northeast, but God called him to go northwest. So Paul listened, and he obeyed. We know he obeyed because verse 10 says that immediately he and his companions sought to go to Macedonia. Immediately, they sought to listen to the Lord's direction. I, I don't expect today that the Lord is going to give us a vision like this. He's going to, uh, he, to call us to go to some place or do something. He may do that, but, but that doesn't seem to be the way that he typically works in this day and age. But friends, God has spoken and his Holy Spirit does still speak. And so as God speaks, how do we listen and hear him? Well, we listen and hear him by first listening to what he has already said. What has he said? I think I told you before that I was, in the, I was at Walmart months ago, and I was walking in, and there was a truck or an SUV, and on the back of it was a bumper sticker that said, want a word from the Lord? Open your Bible. Want a word from the Lord? Dot, dot, dot. Open your Bible. Do you want to know what God is directing you to do? Well, this is how he's spoken. He's called and commanded us to be witnesses. But we also listen and hear him by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us in keeping with the word. The Holy Spirit speaks to us by impressing upon our spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the testimony of the church. And we, we must listen. We must listen. There are times... Um, I think it happened yesterday, maybe, when, when I will call one of my kids and I will, I will stand them in front of me and I will say, I want you to look at me. 
I want you to look at me. Focus. I want you to listen. I want you to hear what I'm saying. And they may listen. But, but if they don't then follow through and obey, there's been a breakdown at some point. And so the call for us as God's children is to listen as he speaks, to listen to him from the word, to listen as his spirit directs our spirit, to listen through the testimony of the church, to listen. But not just to listen, to obey. Now I want to show you this one result here in the, in the text of what obedience might look like. Paul had his own plans, but God directed him elsewhere, and so he listened to the Lord, and he obeyed the Lord, and then through that, God did something extraordinary. Paul was in Troas. He was there with Silas, and he was with Timothy. And while they were there, they met another young man, a man named Luke. And in the transition from, chapter, or from verse 10 to verse 11, maybe you notice this, the pronouns change from the third person plural, they, they went here, they did this, to the first person, we. Look, look at it. Verse 4. As they, Paul, Silas, Timothy, went on their way. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Verse 8. They went down to Troas, and that's where in Troas they met Luke the author of this history, and from verse 11 on it changes. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage. Verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, including that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Friends, this is the turning point. This second-hand history suddenly becomes an eyewitness account. From that point forward, Luke becomes a close companion of Paul. Luke would continue on with Paul through the rest of his life. All because Paul listened and obeyed. Because instead of following his plans, he followed the Lord's plans. And so what this looks like for us is it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a school teacher or a homemaker or a waitress or whatever. God has called us to mission. We read about it in the very first chapter in Acts 1-8. But you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so you say, well, well how does that call me to mission? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Who, who, who are to be the witnesses? Anyone upon whom the Holy Spirit has rested, in whom the Holy Spirit lives. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, you become a witness. You become a missionary whether it's in the home, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in the operating room, that, that we have been called to mission because God's identity is a missionary God and we as his children take on that identity. God's call demands our commitment. God can and occasionally does work above and beyond human means. We see it with the Apostle Paul, right? That, that God sent uh, himself and his, his, his own presence as a bright light to blind Paul. We know it was the Lord's presence because um, Paul refers to him as the Lord. 
God can and does work that way, but most often he works through us as his means, us as his missionaries. His call demands our commitment. And when those two pieces come together, God's call and our commitment, God does extraordinary things and he changes things. We're going to see in just a couple of chapters, right? Over in chapter 17, that it's said of this band of missionaries, they were turning the world upside down. Unfortunately, that's going to come the week of Labor Day. Jason gets to preach that passage. I'm very jealous. Um, I wanted to preach that passage, but Jason's going to get it. They were turning the world upside down because when God's call and our commitment come together, that's what he does. He works through us when we engage in mission. And so let's pray for faithfulness and boldness and obedience. Let's do that now. Lord, Uh, do a work within us that, that we are hesitant to do, to change our hearts. And, and, and I know that I was terribly convicted this week as I was writing these words and thinking about an all-things-to-all-people mindset and what that might look like for me and what things I, I cling to closely that I might need to release, uh, tertiary things, secondary things, things, things that I might uh, value deeply, but they're, they're, really, they're really hindering the advance of the gospel. I pray that for each of us, your spirit would, would reveal those areas to us, convict us. In what ways do we need to adopt an all-things-to-all-people mindset? Will you show us that? Because our pride and our selfishness, it will, it will blind us, we will cling to things. So will you reveal that to us and show that nothing, nothing except the gospel stand in the way of the gospel? that we would have open hands, open hearts. Lord, would you help us to listen to you? Maybe you're calling us to talk to a coworker. Maybe you're ta- calling us to, uh, to re-engage with an estranged family member. Maybe you're calling some of these students to actually go across the sea to give their life to mission. We can do mission right where we are, but perhaps you're calling us to go somewhere. Lord, would you help us to listen and to obey? And then, Lord, through us, as we're faithful and as you've always been faithful, and sometimes in spite of us, would you do like you did back then, nearly 2,000 years ago, and turn the world upside down? Lord, would you do a gospel work that is, that is too great for us to even imagine? And we'll be careful to give you the praise and honor when you do such things. We won't take credit for ourselves. We simply want to be faithful servants. So towards that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.